If you will turn to your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27. We will continue in our series in the book of Exodus, free at last. Listen to the Word of God. Exodus chapter 27. You shall make the uh, make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make posts for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze, and you shall make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put through the ring so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. Likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court, on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with, the, with needlework shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50 and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be reg- that a lamp may regularly be set to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, as all of us sit under the authority of Your Word, including the one speaking, we pray that You would indeed do that work in us by the power of Your Spirit through Your Word. Conform us into the image of Your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we will receive Your Word that we would lay it up in our hearts, and that we would practice it on our lives as the confession encourages us to do. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to draw your attention uh, this morning to a feature of the tabernacle that conveyed a meaning that uh, was important for the Israelites to grasp, and I believe is important for us to grasp as well. Uh, The inner curtain of the tabernacle was to be made out of uh, fine twine linen dyed blue and purple and scarlet. It was to be embroidered with cherubim, heavenly creatures that are associated with the presence of God. Thus, their appearance on these curtains was a symbolic way of indicating that this was God's house, the place where He was making His presence known. Also inside the tabernacle was a screen that separated the most holy place, the room where the ark representing God's presence would be placed, from the holy place, the room where the priest ministered on behalf of the people before the Lord. Once a year, the high priest could enter behind this screen into the most holy place to perform a symbolic ceremony that would make peace between God and His people because of their sins against Him. At the entrance of the tabernacle, there was also a screen which allowed entrance into the sanctuary itself. Though this screen was not embroidered with cherubim, it was of the same fine linen dyed in the same colors, reminding the priests that they were indeed entering the holy habitation of God. But there was also another screen created for the tabernacle grounds. And this screen, mentioned in verse 16, was to be at the entrance of the courtyard, the place where the congregation of Israel would gather, probably by the hundreds, to present their sacrifices to the Lord and worship Him together, perhaps in family groups. And this screen was also to be made of fine linen, dyed in the same colors as the inner curtains and the screen to the tabernacle itself. The point being made here is that the tabernacle and its grounds are not common ground. Once the Israelites passed through the entrance of the courtyard, they were in fact on holy ground. They were on ground set apart by God for them to meet with Him, worship Him, and be empowered by Him to be His holy priesthood in the world. The holy ground of the tabernacle was holy because God was present there, present like He had been at the burning bush with Moses and present as He had been with His people at Mount Sinai. To be on holy ground then is to be on God's ground, ground where He has made Himself present. And I can tell you what that ground is now. It is not a building, and it is not a courtyard. It is not a sacred, uh, sacred city and its cathedral. It is not a church building and its grounds. God's holy ground today is you and me and His people across this globe. God's holy ground now is His church. It is His church that He meets, is in His church that He meets with us, receives our worship, reminds and empowers us to be His holy priesthood in this world. Paul, speaking to one of those communities of God's people, said to them, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are His temple. And we are, brothers and sisters, that holy ground, not because we are holy in and of ourselves. No, we are that holy ground because we are standing on the one 
who is the foundation of this temple of the Lord, which is His people. We are that holy ground because we are standing on, built on, dependent upon the solid rock that is Jesus Christ. And Paul says in that same letter to the Corinthians, it is because of Him that you are in Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The challenge, of course, is in remembering and embodying this truth in our individual and corporate lives. In our sinfulness, we forget and fail to embody this truth. We speak sometimes and act sometimes and live sometimes as anything but a people who have been set apart and who have the privilege of meeting with, worshiping, and serving as God's holy people in this world. Yet this sinfulness doesn't change who we are meant to be. And so the tabernacle would be a place for God's people to be reminded of this, a truth we are now reminded of through the Spirit who is now in us because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We are now in Him a holy dwelling of our God. And the call is to live like it by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit. We are on holy ground when we are in the presence of God, and we are holy ground because of Jesus Christ. Amen, people of God. So, what does it mean? What did it mean for the people of Israel to be on holy ground? What does it mean for us? Well, I want to remind us this morning that uh, holy ground is atonement ground. Holy ground is atonement ground. One of the main objects in the courtyard of the tabernacle would be this bronze altar where the sacrifices that God's people brought to Him were to be made. T. Desmond Alexander says this in his commentary about this altar. He says it was about seven uh, and a half feet wide, four point six feet high. The altar dominates the area in front of the tent. No one could approach the tent's entrance without being reminded of the important function of sacrifices in atoning for sin. Without such, such sacrifices, no human could approach Yahweh safely. To be on holy ground, to be in God's presence requires atonement. God is holy, and we are not unless He makes us so. God was going to teach, this, uh, te- teach His people through the sacrificial system of their need to have their sins forgiven. And since the ultimate penalty for our sin is death, God would teach them that only through the death of a substitute of His choosing could their sins be atoned for. For them to be able to stand before Him, someone else would have to bear the penalty of their transgressions. And so, when they entered the courtyard for worship, they, they were to come with sacrifices in hand, and this altar would be the place where those sacrifices would be laid. Douglas Stewart tells us this in his commentary, by killing an animal, then cooking it on the grill in God's presence, that is to say, in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, and then eating it in God's presence symbolically sharing the meal with him, the Israelite worship learned over and over again the concept of substitutionary atonement or, uh, and or covenant renewal. Some of us may not like the idea that someone has to die in our place in order that we might be accepted before God. We would like to think ourselves good enough on our own 
or that God should simply forgive us out of His own goodness without requiring any such sacrifice. But those of us who know the goodness of God and the depth of the ugliness of our sin know that the wages of sin must be paid, for sin always leads to some form of death. Indeed, the sheer amount of sacrifices that would be made on that altar, not just in the current generation, but in generations to come, would have confronted the Israelites with the amount of death that their sin had brought into the world, let alone the sins of the nations around them and the individuals within those nations. Sin brings death, and that death must be paid for. It must be atoned for. But glory be to God that in His goodness, He determined that He would not ultimately lay that payment on our shoulders. For, for, for through this bronze altar and the substitutionary system that would be performed on it, God was preparing His people for a coming substitute, one that they would not bring to Him, but that He would give to them on their behalf. For I heard it declared by John, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And I heard also the voice of the writer of Hebrews declare, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through a fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All I'm saying to you is that God made a substitute for you to take the penalty of your sins that you might be able to enter into His presence and stand before Him knowing that you now have peace with God through what He has done on your behalf. Jesus died so that we might not die. And lives, uh, and Jesus lives, I should say, so that we might be recipients of eternal life. Through Him, we are enabled to stand on holy ground. That is, through Him, we are able to stand in the presence of God. And I don't know this morning if you really understand and believe that. Maybe you actually do think you're good. But I got news for you this morning. You can't pray enough to stand before God's presence. You can't do enough good works to stand before God's presence. You, 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 you can't love enough to, to, to stand in God's presence. There is nothing you can do in and of yourself to be able to stand before the Lord. So you know what the Lord did? He did it for you. So in the courtyard, God's people would find atonement for their sins as they brought their sacrifices to God. That forgiveness is now found, of course, in Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose blood has washed away our sin. And so we can approach God in worship knowing that we have peace with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the call here, knowing that we have peace with God, is to deal honestly with our sin. The Scriptures call us, in point of fact, to confession, knowing that through repentance we will find our God ready and willing to forgive us and cleanse us. If you are holding on to your sin this morning, 
I want to encourage you not to do so. Confess your sins to God and find the peace that the Lord longs to give to you. If you have wounded another person or persons, go to them and confess your sin to them asking for their forgiveness. As the Israelites brought their sacrifices to God, they would no doubt be reminded of the offenses they had committed against their neighbors and against God. And so this corporate gathering would be a reminder to them of their need to make things right with God and to make things right with each other. We're called to confess our sins together and the knowledge that we are all of us in need of God's mercy, in need of His kindness, in need of His forgiveness. If all of us are bringing our sacrifices before God and laying them on the altar, guess what we can't do? We can't turn to the other person and say, you're worse than me. Because just like they have to sacrifice, so do you. Some of y'all got that. Some of you didn't. So I'll say it again. Some of you all think you're good. You think you're better than the person sitting next to you. Don't look at them right now. But you think you're better than the person sitting next to you. But God wants you to know that the same sacrifice that they needed to be accepted, you needed as well. And so when they would come into the courtyard, they were reminded, we're all sinners before a holy God. And we all need His grace and His mercy and His compassion. No one could pass judgment on the other or condemn the other because everyone needed the same grace. Yes, sin requires discipline and sometimes significant discipline. Yet even in, God's, even in this, God's grace is demonstrated for all of our sin deserves death. But glory be to God, Jesus has paid that price for us all. Amen, people of God. So holy ground is atonement ground. Holy ground is corporate ground. The courtyard was designed to hold hundreds of worshipers at the same time. Thus, the very dimensions of the courtyard are a reminder that while we must each of us put our hope and faith in God for salvation, the covenant is not just an individual reality but a corporate one. God hasn't just allowed me access into His presence, but rather His people corporately. The covenant is a corporate reality reminding us that we are God's people together. Therefore, we have corporate obligations in drawing near to God. We are, we are to confess our faith together, to bring our offerings to God together, to bring our families before God together, to worship the living God together. The Israelites looking around at others in the courtyard would be reminded of their obligations to the Lord and their obligations to the whole community. They would be reminded that the law called not just for love of God, but for love of their neighbor. And as they stood next to fellow Israelites and watched them give their sacrifices of worship to God, they were reminded that they were worshiping the same God, and thus they were equally accepted by Him. Therefore, to leave the courtyard and hate, to leave the courtyard and despise, to leave the courtyard and mistreat a fellow covenant member would have been to show contempt toward the God who had welcomed them. If this was true for them, how much truer is it, is it for us who are members of the new covenant in Christ? For what the courtyard represented symbolically is now fulfilled in Christ's church. In Him, we are God's covenant community. How then are we to treat one another? 
having called the Ephesians to put off the old self, Paul tells them in chapter 4, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather labor doing honest work with his own hand that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The people bound together in covenant with God through Jesus Christ ought to live with one another as Paul instructs us to. We are not just followers of Jesus individually, we are corporately His church, His body, His bride. We belong now to the family of the living God. And so when we draw near to Him in worship, we should also remember our obligations to each other. Let us then confess our sins together. Let us pray together. Let us sacrifice to God together. Let us worship God together. That was what that courtyard represented, all of God's people together worshiping their great God and King and being reminded that they were not just an individual toward God, but a people to Him. Amen, people of God. Every time the Israelites then went into the courtyard, they would see their fellow Israelites worshiping the Lord. And that would be a reminder to them that they belonged to God, not just as individuals, but as a community. They were God's people by virtue of His graciously entering into covenant with them. And they were called to worship together and not just separately. The corporate nature of our relationship with God reminds us of our call to encourage one another in this worship. The writer of Hebrews says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are called to motivate each other toward doing good, demonstrating God's love to each other and those around us. It can be easy to become cynical about the church and forget that she is the body of Christ called to do good in the world and show forth His love. What she needs more than critique is encouragement. So I want to encourage you, New City, to encourage each other in doing good and encourage each other in showing love, encourage each other to participate in the ministries of the church, encourage each other to participate in the worship of God. When you don't see a brother or sister in church, pray for them. And if you don't, and if you know them, check in on them. This isn't just the call of leadership, it's the call of all of us. Stirring one another up is a corporate calling, for the worship of God is a corporate activity. What I'm saying is let's help each other worship. Let's help each other worship with our lives, doing good to each other and our neighbors, and let's help each other get to worship week to week, praying for each other and helping to alleviate whatever barriers are in the way of our coming together. Amen, people of God. Holy ground is atonement ground. It's corporate ground. Finally, it's protected ground. It's protected ground. In verses 20 and 21, God appoints Aaron and his sons to a task, the task of making sure that the lamps in the temple or in the tabernacle are continually lit at night. 
While the Israelites' lamps would be put out during the night, the light in the temple would shine forth continuously through the night. The symbolism is unmistaken. While God's people need sleep, the Holy One of Israel does not. While God's people need to go to bed, the Holy One of Israel does not go to bed. Douglas Stewart says, most of their lamps almost surely would have been extinguished except for one when the last member of the family went to bed. And in many homes, all lamps would be, would be put out at that time. But Yahweh did not sleep. Therefore, it would have been entirely inappropriate to allow his lamp to go out during the night hours because that could be interpreted to mean symbolically that he had gone to bed. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm glad we serve a God that doesn't go to bed. I'm glad for the words of the psalmist who reminds us, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will not slumber nor sleep. Because I know this, I can do what he says earlier. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I, I, I can do that knowing the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. With the lamps lit, not only would Israel know that their God did not sleep, but that He was watching over them, protecting His house and theirs. And glory be to God that He remains our protector. He remains the God who watches over heaven and earth. It is because of Him that all of us can sing through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me on. Why should I feel discouraged? And why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for my heavenly home when Jesus is my portion. My, my constant friend is He. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know that He watches over me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. Can I, can I get any witnesses in the house that know that God is watching over you, that He is paying attention to you, that He knows where you are and what you're going through and what you are dealing with? The tabernacle presented the Israelites with the truth that, that, that they and we need to remember our God does not sleep. He is, as Isaiah proclaims, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is our God, and He is still watching over us in Jesus. The call here is to believe that you are in good hands. No, God's promise is not that nothing will happen to you in this life. His watching us is not a promise that we will not face trial. In fact, Jesus tells us the very opposite in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have 
tribulation, there are going to be some hard times and some difficult times and some painful times and some dark times and some discouraging times and some times when, when life seems to overshadow you. But here's the promise of God in Jesus Christ. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. As the text indicates, the one in whose hands we are now is the one who has overcome the world. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, who had been through all kinds of mess and all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of trials and hardships and pains and discouragement, who could still say, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know the Lord has me in His hands, and I know that He is watching over me through everything that I face in this life and in this world. So, as we face all that this world throws at us, we can do so trusting what the confession tells us about God's providence. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and actions and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom and His power and His justice and His goodness and His mercy. God watching over us means that we will see even in the darkness of this world His wisdom, His power, His justice, His goodness, and His mercy shining through. And in these moments, in these moments is embedded a promise of a future when all things will be made as they should be. Our God is watching over us. His lamp does not go out. His light does not dim. And that God who is watching over us is the God of heaven and earth, the God working all things to the praise of His glory. Amen, people of God. Holy ground is atonement ground, and it's corporate ground, and it's protected ground. And we are that ground if our faith is in Jesus Christ our Lord and His promise to us, His promise to us is that He will never leave us nor forsake us, but He will always watch over His people until the day comes where he brings us to glory. Amen, people of God. Praise the Lord for his blessing and his mercy and his grace and his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that the tabernacle symbolized, all that its ground symbolized to the people of Israel. And we thank you that all that it symbolizes is fulfilled now in Jesus Christ our Lord and in His church. We pray that by the power of the Spirit, we might walk in the fullness of life that we have in Jesus, that we would be reminded, Lord, that because of Him, we are indeed brought into the presence of God. We are brought onto holy ground. I pray, Lord God, I pray that we would give you praise and thanks and glory and honor all the days of our life. Because in you our sins have been forgiven, in you we have been made a family of God together, and in you, in you, 
we are protected until the day when you bring us home to be with you forever. We give you praise, glory, honor, and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.